This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Kenyan writer Binyavanga Wainaina about the ethics of global aid to Africa. I spoke with him on November 12, 2008, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of Williams College in Massachusetts. This interview is included in our program, The Ethics of Global Aid, One Kenyan's Perspective, which was originally broadcast in December 2008. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Hello? There I can hear you. Yeah. Oh, hi. You're very faint. Oh, all right. Um, that's better. Yep, that's okay. good. Okay, I think we just turned some volume up. Great to have you there at the other end of my headphones. I think we're done on the cell phone. Yes, thank you. See ya. All right, and our guest isn't here yet. Okay. Um, we have two sets of headphones, and I'm wearing one set. Okay. How's, how's our uh, gain versus noise sound? Um, I think it, Mitch, you're shaking. Actually, it sounds kind of noisy. He says it sounds a little noisy. Like crickets. My phone's down a little. How's that? Is that better? No, it sounds kind of constant. Can you so you two are in the same room? He can hear me. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. I think, uh, I think our guest is wandering around the hall out here. <laughs> I think I heard him say his name. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to try. There we go. All right, we're going to get him on the headphones, and we'll both be on them, and we'll get this all set, and then um, I'll just leave you here. Okay. Hi there. How are you? Do you want to take your coat off so you're comfortable? You'll be here a while, I think. He's getting settled. Okay. So if you want to sit here, um, and these are for you, you can put them on each ear, and then this is going to go to the right of your mouth. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> it's Krista Tippett. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> it's good to hear you. Good to have you there. Good to hear your voice, yes. <laughs> now, at some point, maybe in about an hour, I'll have to take a five-minute break and eat an apple. Okay. You can take it whenever you need to take a five-minute break. It's allowed. Okay. Did you not have lunch? No, I, I was. I just came out of the gym. Okay. And I'm a diabetic, so my sugar might get low. All right, it's it's no problem. Um, this is not live, so you you can we can stop anytime. It's not an right. issue. Um, see, you sound a little faint. You s the volume sounds sorry. a little low to me on that end. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Okay, uh, they say we keep chatting. Okay, <laughs> um, uh, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's not red supposed to be a hard red question. Peppers, <laughs> olives. Okay. And a funny, funny mixture done in the blender <laughs> of all kinds of strange ingredients. <laughs> okay. I've been told to behave. <laughs> Who told you to behave? <laughs> Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? <laughs> can you hear me? Hello? I can't I can't oh, hear. What happened? I can't hear them. Uh okay, I'm I'm still talking. Hello? I'm still talking. Hello? Hi. Oh. Hi. So I went away for a minute. 
<laughs> I'm not okay, sure. I can hear you now. All right, I'm not sure what happened. Mitch, are you okay with that? Do you know? All right. Um, it sounds good to me. You okay. need to hear him a little bit more. All right. Um, okay. I'm still talking. I'll still. Uh, Bruce, are you set on your end? Get louder than this. Yeah, we're all set here. Okay, hang on one second. All right. I wonder. Yeah, would you? I would like for, for to hear you say your name so that I say it correctly. Okay, it's Binyavanga mm-hmm. Wainaina. Okay, got it. Um, I think uh, Shiraz told you w- w- what, how we're approaching this. We're this the general theme of the ethics of aid, and we want yes. to kind of question, as you do in your work, the yes. unquestioned idea that aid is good. Yes. Um, or always good. And um, do you have any do you have any questions of me before we begin about the program? Or uh, sorry, I'm just playing my dose. <laughs> 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 no, no, I'm good. Okay, all right. I'm good to go. All right. Um, I've been reading a lot of what you've written over the last few years all over the place. <laughs> And it's great. And so really, I just, I, I want to kind of ask, uh, ask you to, I'll, you know, lead us through this. We get to have a real conversation. Um, it, we get to wander and it doesn't have to be especially symmetrical. Um, uh, but so, um, or especially linear. Uh, yes. And um, yeah, I just kind of want to draw you out on the things that you've already been writing about and, and speaking about. Okay. Okay, and I wanted to start by asking you, um, when I just use these, you know, say these words, the ethics of aid, what if you kind of tell me what that phrase conjures for you if you think about, you know, growing up in Kenya? I mean, what is that, how would you just begin to describe what that phrase means through the story of your, the beginnings of your life? Well, um... I guess when uh, um, I am somebody who belongs to, I guess you could call it the middle class mm-hmm. um, in Kenya, and a middle class of, of parents who worked extremely hard to do what they didn't get where they did, and uh, parents on both sides who felt that um, what was who, who felt that they struggled hard all their lives and that the thing more than any one thing that they could deliver to their children was to live as ethical people. Okay. <coughs> um, but both my father and my mother, my father was a public servant and uh, worked um, also very, very hard. And we lived in a country where people who had jobs like his would steal money. And so it was a very strange thing to go to school with people whose fathers had the same job title as yours. And they have all these cars and mm. this lifestyle and these holidays, etc., mm. which we never had. And I was actually having a conversation with, you with a friend of mine to say that, you know, um, because they called me here in the U.S. and they were like, do you know the so-and-sos? And do you know, I said, I don't know the so-and-sos because right. Right. <laughs> I wasn't right. brought up at any point to become a so-and-so. <laughs> okay. Further than that, um, um, my parents were very insistent that we all go to state schools. And they came from a generation who believed that we have to build our own infrastructure. And I went and I feel I got an extremely good education. Mm -hmm. And I was in state schools from childhood right up to 
uh, after finishing high school. Um, and I was in state schools at a time that good state schools were so competitive that the expensive private schools people went to when they failed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and for a large part of my childhood, um, I guess the donor world didn't really register in any significant way. Um, we felt that 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 um, there were many problems in 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 Kenya, uh, but we felt too that uh, you know much had moved. Um, uh, my grandparents were born dirt poor; they hardly had any schooling. Mm. Had any schooling. My grandmother had 12 children. My granddad on my mother's side had 12 children. Hmm. Um, um, my grandmother died of a stroke in 1963. She'd managed to get on a two-acre piece of land 12 of her kids through university. Um, so you had all this. Right. And I, I really can't tell you when, um, when it turned. Because w- when I was in high school, when if you would travel around a small town, you'd start to see the breakdown of the middle class. Okay. And the middle class, which is just the people who owned shops and small businesses, the strivers. Okay. And there was an arrival of a new kind of politically connected class. Who? So you'd go to my hometown and all the shops and all the small businesses and all the small factories of just this striving class of people who I was brought up with were broken. They were broken, their loans had gone, had spilled out of control. True, on the other hand, you know, there was a kind of liberalization of trade and there was, you know, a whole other uh, a class of, of, of aggressive traders who were coming up. Right. Um, but what was happening is you are seeing dizzy money. As one part of, uh, you know, a town was crumbling, people were building these political white elephants the son of the okay. president had this you know 12 story hotel with an underground disco which remained empty and he had the kind of money that just didn't bother so you just were seeing these things swirling around you and at the time so all the flash cars and things you would see through the 80s and the 90s was of a class of people who were just walking into central bank and pilfering money hmm. uh and breaking everything else. I mean, what civil life was was just breaking. Those same schools we went to, all of those things we saw kind of just eroded. Now, but around the 90s somehow, at the point at which um, the the world told the Kenya government that you're bad, <laughs> and because you're bad somehow, we're not giving you aid anymore because it's the post-1989 thing and the Cold War is over and it's because of democracy. There was just an arrival of a new kind of money. And did the, the donor money uh, really pulled back in that well, period? Well, the donor money pulled back from servicing government programs okay. and servicing a, a, a plan set by government mm-hmm. and went into another sector, which was called the NGO sector right. and civil society. Right. And... Well, that was fine. I mean, at the time, the idea of civil society, you were seeing all these kind of pro-democracy movements coming up. You had these symbolic people coming up. And so, in general, these were things that were thrilling and the government was the enemy. Okay. But as time grew, you started to see, I mean, 
you hear of when you're in high school you hear of these people so and so drive such and such a car but somehow you start seeing these luxury 4x4 SUVs well, and suddenly you have this service industry. You go into Nairobi, you want to rent a flat, you can't rent a flat. There's now an equal and opposite amount of dizzying money in circulation okay. by people being employed by this industry. Mm. And um, it, it, there's a sense in which it, it, it kind of becomes unconscionable because you just have, it's lovely. I mean, you have world-class restaurants in Nairobi and and this kind of thing. And, you know, at the back of your head, it's just a little bit weird that you have kind of now two classes of people in mm-hmm. a country who just seem to be doing exceptionally well. Now, for all that, that of, for all of the corruption that happens in my country uh, uh, within a government, mm-hmm. even at the worst of times, there has never been a time that people like me have seeded the idea that we have a country that dreams of having a kind of accountability. Which Mm -hmm. is to say we have always gone to the streets when we feel our judiciary is threatened. We have always gone to the streets when we felt that um, our constitution is not fair. Um, At the worst of times, we've always believed that our constitution was there to make Kenya a better place. So there's a landscape of probable accountability. And therefore, whoever was there stealing that money and building that big hotel, you could look at that thing and document it in the back of your head and see a framework where there will be some kind of fairness accounted for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the worst of times, you still felt in 92, in 97, 2002, and even in the most terrible situation in the last election, that your vote has the force of power to speak to that problem. You did. You did feel that. Or you didn't feel that. We did feel that. Yes. So cynical or not cynical about anything, the um, the government in Kenya lives within a framework. Mm-hmm. And at the worst times of Moy, even then, even when he tried to buck it and duck Daniel it and Arab dive Moy. it, mm-hmm. Daniel Arap Moy, who was a, who was the president of Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, the rule of law still remained as the overarching structure that governs Kenya. But with the donor aid, somehow it just, you can't see or touch where it comes from, mm-hmm. <laughs> what it does, right. why it does it, who it speaks to, and why. <laughs> Nor to, does anybody come in the middle of a year with a, with a briefcase and announce to the public and say, we spent so much money on this amount of money. Nor is there a government auditor who says you lied. Mm. Because it should be forgotten. In Zimbabwe, in Kenya, in all these countries that are supposed to be extremely incompetent, there's somebody called an auditor, and he actually shows what happened. (laughs) So you know what's being done to you, and they're doing it, but you have a clear sense of what it is, where it belongs, and you have a sense of what you can do about it. Okay. So you could call yourself a fledgling democracy of some sort. There are many threats to you, Mm -hmm. but you can see the structure. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I guess I've acquired a reputation for a certain number of polemics towards donor aid. Uh, Now, in principle, I have no particular problem to the idea that people feel that we are a globe, and in this globe we are interrelated, and we need to help each other, and we need to move things along. That's not the idea. What I'm saying is that what you have is a beast that has massive amounts of money Mm 
an enormous amount of influence, an influence that now affects the sovereignty of many countries. Okay. Or, uh, you know, so people talk about how oil companies go and affect politics in Africa. Nobody talks about how the donor industry can speak to a president and shift things, but you yourself as a citizen have no say or play in that game. So, as, as you know... Um, yes. Someone looking on, a, a, a well-meaning person, let's say, yes. in the United States or in Great Britain or in Germany, um, who hasn't thought very hard about this or um, or seen some of the contradictory statistics there are, analysis about whether donor aid helps, you know, would, 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 m- might be quite puzzled by this, um, by this kind of assertion because they would say, well, what... Donor aid is not about sovereignty. It's 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 projects that are helping, right? It's projects that are feeding the hungry or building yes. schools, s- sending food, sending medicine. So, uh, t- try to tell the story of um, how that kind of help <laughs> becomes problematic. I mean, it's, it's a basic <laughs> question. Do you know what I'm saying? But I don't. I yeah, don't think yeah. it's. Ex- I don't think well, people get it. Okay, I'll just put it like this. Okay. Uh, um, uh, <clears throat> When you live in a country, when you live when you live in a city like Nairobi, uh, um, which has had its periods of high function and low function, mm-hmm. which has uh, you know a generation of people with world class skills in banking, in finance, in all manner of things, who have always been underpaid and everything else, um, and among the circles of people who whom I know, a lot of whom work for this industry. Um, one of the things that it, it may amuse people to discover is that people who work for the aid industry are the most cynical ones about it. People working for the aid uh, industry. You mean Africans, yeah. uh, Kenyans or the, the the Western... Kenyans and sometimes others. Okay. Because, I mean, <coughs> structurally, and I guess part of the problem is that you cannot see what kind of structure it, it is inside its country and how it accounts for it. So I'll just give, I'll just give an example. Yeah. I'm sitting in a bar and I'm drinking with a guy and I'm like, so what do you do? So he says, I work for one of those Oxfam places. Okay. Uh, not Oxfam. It was not Oxfam. I must clarify this. But, you know, something that helps starving children. Right. Oh, okay. What do you do? Uh, it's an orphanage. And at this orphanage, we have these donors. And, you know, they're well-meaning people somewhere in England or Germany or America. And they see a photo and they say, a dollar a day, we'll save this, whatever. So we are talking in Kiswahili, and a lot of these conversations happen in Kiswahili. So I'm like, so, oh, cool. So how's your job? He's like, eh, it's a job. So uh, so him and his friend look at each other, and they start laughing. So I'm telling him why. So he says, no, you know, I used to do field work. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do field work, but nowadays I'm spending two days a week writing letters. Hmm. So I say, why? <laughs> and he tells me, well... You see, what happens is that because we are an orphanage, we have all these kids that come from the street. Now, kids, if you know street kids in Kenya, they come and then they go. But you see, that's a problem because your donor sees a picture of somebody and, is supposed and to be then they send a portfolio. I'm sorry. And, and is supposed to be getting letters from that child? or? Well, you get a portfolio of a child called Paul Mwangi, and Paul Mwangi was born in a village, and, right. and then they write each other letters, right. and then she sends or he sends money. Right. The problem is, Pauls come and go. Right. <laughs> and the donor has a, let's call it, a personal relationship with Paul. Mm-hmm. So a situation arose that year where somebody, you know, irresistibly driven, took a holiday to Kenya. 
they went to the beach, they went to see the, the animals. Then they were like, you know, I should go and see my adopted child. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul was long gone. But, you know, um, when you have an institution like this, like th- like this orphanage, you're in a process of fundraising and you're in a process of perpetual fundraising. Um, and true, sometimes it is up and sometimes it is down. And you have all these children that are coming in there and you cannot afford to say we are cutting this fundraising. But also you have questions of capacity. Is that if you have 40 children and you have this number of staff, if someone is going to remove their funding, are you going to reduce your 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 thing anyway so the long and the short of it is that she came and found that paul wasn't there (laughs) so now they had to manage the problem and so he writes letters and censors the letters of these children so that you have a situation where people on that side have the assumption that there's some sense of continuity that doesn't take place now um that's all well and good now who is who is this work reported to um, you have all these small, small things that have 20 people, 15 people, whatever. But you have orphanages in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And they were once functional. And they were co- cost effective. An idea that you have some expatriate who's coming to earn eight or $9,000 a month to run an orphanage with 20 children. <laughs> right, right. Do you know, I- right. Uh, in a country where you have competent people who are unemployed, I've been to Sudan and been to a hospital where you have doctors from Germany who just sit and complain. And then you have male nurses. Half of Sudan is being run by Kenyan, Kenyans who can't get jobs in Nairobi and who are paid what they call local rates. Mm-hmm. They do all the dog work and you have something else happen. So you have all these malls and things coming up in my city with people who have competent jobs, with people who are former backpackers, mm-hmm. who have jobs in the United Nations or somewhere else. And there's just something that does not make sense about it. Every week you hear about something, one thing that received dizzying amounts of money then went belly up. Um, You go to a government hospital, you cannot get decent services. And so I get the sense, in a sense, that somebody's asking us Kenyans to become infants again. Hmm. And they're like, just let us do it. We'll put you on our breast and we'll feed you. And that I don't think is what we got independence for. <laughs> that's right. not that's not what we worked for, and that's not what we said we want to become. And I, I think, that, yeah, uh, sorry. Yes. Well, and I think that's precisely the point that comes across in in your writing and in also in in other people's um, observations. It's 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 the effect um, that donor aid and donor driven projects have on the sense of self. Of the people who are receiving the aid. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've used this phrase, um, oxfamming the whole black world. Mm-hmm. And it's very serious. It's, it's, it's very damning language. Um, let me just read, let me just read a little bit of this. Um, okay. And, I, you know, you, you say, you know, are you, hello, kitty, kitty, kitty. Are you an orphan? Are you Sudanese, Chadian? Are you a sub-Saharan African suffering from mild mental retardation? Are you an African woman suffering from the African male? Would you like an Oxfam biscuit, organic antiretrovirals? Have you been raped? You might not know it, but you are an orphan, a refugee. Can we fly 103 of you to France to be loved? We can breastfeed you. We can make you a Darfur orphan, even if you are not. If you are black and under 10 years old, Please come talk to us. 
Uh, you know, we can save you from yourself. We can save ourselves from our terrible selves. Help us to Oxfam the whole black world to make it a better place. I mean, talk to me about that, that psychological, that unintended, you know, again, this is well-intentioned, but this unintended psychological, debilitating psychological effect. I, you know, I, I, I think it, it has, um, the truth of the truth of the matter is that if you if you move around inside certain circles inside Nairobi, you start to understand that you've got a skin or a layer of people who have some influence, who just have no connection to what the real Nairobi is. Mm-hmm. They don't know. Once somebody arrives in the city, if you're an American working for a serious uh, NGO or something else, there are all these places you can't go and things that you can't do. So what happens is that you end up living an extremely limited life with fellow people doing similar things. Um, And and, and there's uh, um, uh, one thing that I bump into a lot is the inability to read competence. To read competence? To to read competence. Mm -hmm. Um, you perpetually find people who leave um, donor organizations or whatever to set up their own business or something else because they're like, these people take my accent to be a kind of incompetence. Mm -hmm. Nobody can hear what my competence is here and nobody's measuring the value of what I do here. So uh, that's one thing. There are other more cynical things which need to be said is that in a sense you need to a critical Nairobi is a sexy place you can live there if you've got a great job you can be Masai Mara next week you can be where next week if you volunteer for a year abroad from England you can be working I met a young woman <laughs> I met a young woman who told me she was teaching grown men how to use condoms <laughs> she was living next to a national park okay. and she would go three times a week and somebody was paying for her to go and sit to grown Kenyan people and teach them she's mm. out of high school mm. And I'm like, you know, we are exporting all our competent nurses to work in Britain because they can't find jobs. Because the jobs in nursing would be taken by Western aid organizations? The jobs in Kenya? No, because you have these these people who are doing the ineffective things. But the problem is that you can't see, you don't know where they are. You have this massive industry which doesn't account to anybody. Mm. It's it's communications of what it does are private between itself and its donors. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks words like grassroots or sustainability, but it you know it may deal with a public out there, but it does not tell that public who it accounts to or not. Like even the most illiterate villager in Kenya knows who to report the chief to. I went to a province in Kenya years ago. I mean, the moment that my ideas about it really bega- began to shift was when my father. <laughs> retired and and um he had been in public service all his life mm-hmm. and after twiddling his thumb for a couple of years he was bored and he had a f- and because he'd worked in the agricultural industry he had a friend who had a lot of money and uh, this was at the time that they were privatizing things in Kenya and so the friend called him up and said listen i have this ginery i want to buy it's a cotton ginery and cotton has some kind of value and you have all these districts in kind of semi arid areas where people stopped growing cotton, it was all that they could grow. Now, my dad has been working with farmers 
all his life and it's something that matters very much to him i was on holiday i was you know somewhere in between college and he was like i kind of would like to get my teeth into this and make and see how to make it work and because he done made something work it'd be fine so he dispatched me to kind of so my job was basically to go from community to community in four different districts Mm -hmm. And listen to people and what their problems were. And what I found, of course, was horrific because people had grown cotton. Some of it was still in the stores. The cooperative had stolen the money, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so they, pr- they were welcoming of the idea that there was an institution that could do things. But the thing that started to shock me is that I'd go to certain places and I'd be told, oh, I- so if you, if you are trying to set up something in Kenya, the structure is you go and speak to the agricultural extension office, which they're supposed to be competent people in an office in every district in the country whose job is to know who the farmers are, advise them, bring new technology, etc. It's something I've known since I was a child. So that's what I would do. Uh, You go set up meetings, you'd meet people, you talk to them. But I'd go to somewhere, I'd go to Thika Town, and I'd meet women and they'd tell me, oh, okay, so what are you going to buy for us? I said, I can't buy. I said, no, you need to talk to Plan International. When Plan takes us out to meet farmers, they pay us a per diem. And is that a, an NGO? Plan yes. International? <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, but that's unethical. You're hmm. being, who's at whose, uh, for who are you in service to? I went to a district where people had these water tanks and this water system, and everybody in the community was like, oh, when you meet, no, you need to talk to Plan. Please talk to Plan. Hmm. So in certain places, you felt that the government, which was completely apathetic, had really given up. Right. It's authority mm-hmm. to uh, organizations which had occupied it. Right. And um, to me, so it just meant basically, and you could see, I mean, you could, you, ca- you could see the difference and you can see the difference in so many parts of Kenya that somebody getting a government salary as an agricultural extension officer in one part and somebody l- looking very plump and convenient with a nice car parked outside <laughs> in another one. And you've signed up to all manner of things, which, again, you know, one is not accountable. So at whose service are you? Mm-hmm. And who is plan? What are they to anybody? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, wh- where does this speak to? Again, you know, just the idea, again, that, that somehow um, something can countermind how, you know, a, a state wants to vision itself and enter with so much dizzying force of money and change um, that you cannot speak to your own citizenry as a Kenyan who wants to do something. Um, so, uh, it, you know, there's also the question of that just the sheer amount of power wielded by institutions, again, that you have no control over. Right, with that amount of money to spend. With that amount of money. Mm-hmm. And, of course, once you that is set up, and if you're speaking to the politicians and everyone else, that's perfect for them because these guys will feed the poor, will feed the starving. Every year you hear the Kenyan government saying, we uh, ask the donors to please g- take food. So when you have a drought in one part of the country, you have a bumper harvest in another. Mm-hmm. And somehow, the government will just be like, here are the donors. It's suitable. They need to get more funding. They need more money from America for their institution to continue growing. So they're happy to do this. We're happy to leave it to them because then uh, we don't have to do our own work. Right. So to fulfill the mandate that a, a population gave us, they'll be fed by somebody else. We'll go for the elections and we shall be fine. Now, so th- um, for me, these are very, very important issues, and they're issues that constantly get discussed but do not really get addressed. So this is the point: is that I don't actually know. 
I have a very clear picture, and I think most Kenyans have a very clear picture, how effective their government is. Hmm. Nobody knows how effective donors are to anybody. Okay. This is the point. Yeah. Is that it just so people say it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. I can't tell you what donors accounted for economic growth in my country last year. Yeah. And I, don't I can't tell you. I don't I think there are global studies that can document that either. There are, are there? Hmm. Hmm? Are there global studies that No, I think I think even the studies that have been done there's no there's not any kind of overwhelming compelling basis of data one way or the other that of what aid has accomplished or failed to accomplish, <laughs> right? I I think that's true. Yeah, well, yeah, because everything is set up on its own. Mm-hmm. So I've met people who are doing amazing things. Really, I mean, truly, 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 it is not a cynicism. I've met people who work for NGOs who have done things that warm my heart, make me cry. It is not the question of what is it. Mm-hmm. it but um, uh, but at, at the same time, um, they are all in the service of something that's massive, opaque, uh, unaccountable. Mm-hmm. And so when the questions come of when people decide, when things that they do become dangerous. Right. Um, uh, and uh, for example, the idea that in whole swaths of what was a very, very functional parts of central province, that you have people who are commanding uh, um, uh, our own uh, 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 um, um, agricultural extension officers, which may be one of the most mo- more key jobs in the country, because um, if there's one thing we've done well since independence, it was to have a communication network of people who could speak to farmers. Kenya is the country that start in 19, between 1963 and 1969 multiplied the production of cash crops that even the British colonial government could not do. Right. Ordinary Kenyans, some of them illiterate, grew high speciality crops and sold them. So uh, um, all those villages where people talk about the poorest of the poor were places that delivered people who are leaders right now. Obama's father, um, (laughs) out of small schools Mm -hmm. and small places. Those are places my parents were born in. Mm -hmm. So to see people treated like infants, to me, is just unconscionable. I cannot stand it because somehow they forget that those same farmers in 1976 were sending their kids abroad on their 10 acres of coffee. And is there something um, in... The presence of it has aid, in fact, um, in your mind, contributed to that to that regression, to that reversal of fortunes. I mean, clearly, it's a complicated picture, and lots of things uh, yeah. uh, contributed to it. But is aid part of the problem there, or or is it? Or I mean, I think also what you're clearly saying is that is that aid inhibits the creation of really functioning infrastructures, democracy, and accountable government that is needed to for any kind of long-term solutions? Yes. I mean, um, let me say, uh, I would say quite unambiguously mm-hmm. that that if, if there are good principles and good hearts and good ideas behind what aid is, that's well and good. But until aid itself as a concept is thoroughly reformed, so that we are not getting into agendas that we don't know just because somebody's throwing money. Really, the the reason that you have such a massive aid presence in Kenya is because there's cash. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Because there's it, cash. They come with money. Right. And because they come with money, they can walk in anywhere. And there's so it's no, irresistible. It, there's no, 
unambiguous thing. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the thing happened that at some point, this large chunk of money that used to flow down the government coffers disappeared and it went elsewhere. So you have people going to university and saying, I'm not going to produce anything anymore. I want to go and start an NGO. You write a proposal, I have to do something, <laughs> okay. I'm making awareness happen. Right. So right. fine. Um, um, you have a political class of people who are like, hey, I don't have to account. I don't have to have a development plan for my constituency. There are all these NGOs. They're very happy. They'll go and do it. They'll go and get money and they'll do it. So something that starts to measure you as the, the size of something that you feel you are not. I've always felt that my country, Kenya, is a country that has promised to become something like a middle-income country. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that it has always had the skills to do that. But I do not think that many of, of these organizations measure us any differently from a starving orphan in Sudan. I mean, it's just there. Right. Uh, Nairobi is particularly convenient and a- attracts a lot of NGOs because the lifestyle is much better than Darfur or somewhere mm. else. Yeah. You know, so there are all these intricacies in the game. Uh, and the game becomes fairly, fairly opaque inside it. But also, I feel much stronger that I do not like the idea. Uh, um, that, that, that you have people who I don't know as a Kenyan citizen who can walk and tell the president to do something and he does something. Right, right. I mean, when we saw... We, there was a one terrible moment in Kenya when our, our defense minister four, four, five years ago was had made some kind of announcement about terrorism and some kind of orange alert. And it was around the time that we were feeling that the American government was imposing uh, anti-terrorism regulation in Kenya that was completely inappropriate for what our circumstances were. And so we saw something on television that day in the news because the press was really against what the defense minister had said. And we opened our news, uh, our, our, our televisions, and saw an American general sitting in the front of our screen with our defense minister standing behind him hmm. in my country. And the general was like, the, the gen- our minister was sweating, and the general was like, I'd like to tell you people that this man is a good man. So I'm like, who's running this country? Right. So... It's the same sort of thing. It's the same mentality. <laughs> it's the it's same kind right. of impunity. And right. in a sense, a, a kind of arrogance too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that somehow, because of the idea, whenever you talk, uh, whenever I talk you know, in, to people, I'm like, Pinyafanka, who else will do the work? Who goes to the poorest of the poor? No, 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 no. Right. And therefore then, I'm like, so therefore, what you're saying is that I, my president, I can write a, an article criticizing my president and telling me you're not doing what you're mandated to do. Who does the same for you? Hmm. Yeah, I want to come back to something you said a minute ago. You, you said um, that most of the people in Nairobi are not the starving orphan in Sudan. Part of the problem, part, one problem is that um, people outside Africa tend to see Africa as this mass, right? Not as a collection <laughs> of countries with very different histories and, and economic presence. And, um, uh, and I mean, you've written about, um, you wrote an article, you know, how, how to write about Africa, which, yeah. is, which is about how um, there is this kind of overriding picture. And I think, you know, the starving orphan in Sudan is pretty mm-hmm. pretty um, quintessential of, you know, and that becomes the image of Africa in Western imaginations. And it becomes mm-hmm. this galvanizing image. It's on the basis of that image that all kinds of great aid ideas are, are mm-hmm. launched. Um, 
so you know Kenya, but but here's what I said. You know, but that starving orphan in Sudan is real. Yes. Right? Does exist. Yes. And so, it, you know, and so I'm asking you to engage in a conversation with the imagination of my listeners. So how yes. do they start to know, how, how would you ask people to start yes. to discern where there really is a humanitarian crisis, uh, yes. where any and all help from anywhere should should come immediately, um, yes. and and then how to start to draw boundaries to think about, as you say, a, a totally ref, a, a reform of the very notion yes. of aid. Well, your guess is as good as mine because I guess for your listener, it's stuck in the same problem that 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 I am yeah. because um, what you have is a mass of of institutions that exist that say um, so. I mean, and and part of the problem is, I mean, even what you would call the responsible media just cannot really provide intelligence <laughs> you know um uh, the new york times style sheet will call an african war a tribal war i am really hard pressed as is any african to understand what is a tribe really <laughs> really confused about it okay because <laughs> because you've had people who live in big empires you have people who live in there are 106 of them you have people who are decentralized you have people who are kings but in the New York Times style sheet, Africa is tribe. Mm-hmm. Now, and so, uh, a war in Africa is a tribal war. Or we, and words like atavistic and anything present themselves. So, there, you already have a framework where, uh, you know, I was talking about this. I was reading Andrew Su- Sullivan's blog, mm-hmm. a place I love to go. And he, he was mini Obama, 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 we're all excited. <laughs> right. And then, somewhere, I assume he heard something terrible was happening in Congo. So he put this photo of this burnt child, which was like, oh, my God, isn't that terrible? And then he moved on. Now, you know, that precisely is the problem, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is that there's such a cynical assumption that human beings cannot actually listen to human problems that you need this kind of weird shock appeal that doesn't say who, what, where, Mm -hmm. when, how. Mm -hmm. That somehow that child in Congo deserves no context, so someone is like, right. I've got to do something. Right. And then if you Google enough, there'll be someone with a child just like that or looking at you and then tell you, click here and sell a dollar. Yeah. So you pay some guilt money. But then after a while, you've paid some guilt money. Next year, you'll need something more horrific to notice because you get more and more numb, the more and more horror you witness. I also, you know, something so, I think... So, you know, so yeah. you have this campaign that's going and, you know, we've just wa- gone through the Obama campaign and I'm just like, look how amazing it is possible to actually not dehumanize somebody on a photograph, right, right. to provide context and make people listen to something in an intelligent and positive way. Why do you have to constantly insult our continent in the, in, under the guise of pretending to help it? Mm-hmm. You have these children who never speak. You have a man in khaki speaking on their behalf. You know, I, I, I don't even know how much our GDP has fallen because of just the the just pup, you, ubiquitous photographs of us looking like that that gives the impression that nothing happens. And I don't know for every dollar given in that way how many dollars of somebody who wanted to invest in a business in Nairobi have gone away. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, here's something you wrote in your in your essay, How to Write About Africa. The modern African is a fat man who steals and works in the visa office, refusing to give work permits to qualified Westerners who really care about Africa. He is an enemy of development. Among your characters, you must al- always include the starving African. Her children have flies on their eyelids and pot bellies. And her breasts are flat and empty. She can have no past, no history. Such diversions ruin the dramatic moment. Something that I've thought a great deal about as a journalist is also how, you know, getting to that, but even in a, on a much simpler level, um, the problem with these dramatic pictures of frozen moments of despair, mm. you know, it's not just that they give us no past and no history to this person. Mm. They also give us no sense of the resources that this human being will have just to wake up the next morning and and keep going um mm, mm, mm. it's 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 a te- it's technology that in fact is really debilitating i mean not just for the person in the picture but for the person who's wa- who's looking at it well um the ethics of those pictures to me i mean really uh, um <laughs> I can't tell you, I can't tell you how much they are upsetting. Because someone just keeps telling you the urgency of the situation, people in Darfur are dying. I'm like, if you have to dehumanize people to that degree for them to die, if it is that the Western audience is so inattentive to a possible genocide, that that is what you have to do, don't do anything. Leave us alone. Really? Uh, Yes, yeah, because... Because I'm just like, if somebody, ha- if our children have to be bestialized, so that you, because the color minch will never give you anything. If if journalism becomes journalism in Western media right now is NGO journalism, hmm. you get on an aid plane, right, right. and go right. somewhere and are given people to interview by an aid organization that has managed your problem. I've been asked to do this, right. Mm-hmm. Where, to the point where Darfur, which has a great history, which could be contextualized for a public, right? Mm-hmm. If it is that we are just going to permanently occupy a new new slot of bloodletting and suffering, not, uh, you, let us just solve our own problem. That that should not be a way that human beings deal with each other on any terms. If that is the only term that America can speak to us, let's not speak. Because we are humans. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. How do you... And and I cannot... I, I find it so impossible to accept. I mean, you have... I've met photographers who tell me, I can get pictures in that win global awards because you are allowed to. <laughs> right, You're right, allowed right. to take that kind of a picture of an African. You'll never be able to put a picture like that of any other kind of person. Hmm. How... How do, I mean, how do you think, though, about mm, addressing this problem that is, you know, fundamentally, it's not even just a problem of interpretation, it's a problem of seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you in your um, short story, Discovering Home, yes, I understand you're writing a book from that, uh, ba- yes, based yes, on that? Yes, yes, it comes right. out next year. Okay. So uh, there's one place where you, uh, where the, there is an account of going to, Kampala, Uganda, where your mother is from. Yes. And there's this moment of um, where where vision is adjusted, right? That Between mm, childhood mm. fantasies of this place and then yes. what you wrote is the better aesthetic of reality. And yes. you describe um, Kampala, which 
you know, you describe kind of a first glance of disorganization, potholes, bad management, haphazardness, the African city that so horrifies the West. Mm -hmm. But then what you say is the truth is that it is a city being overwhelmed by enterprise. I see smiles, the shine of healthy skin and teeth, no layabouts, lounging and plotting at every street corner. How how (laughs) can that transformation of vision take place? I mean, do you think about that? I suppose your work is your is your contribution to that. Um. Uh, certainly. I mean, if you speak to any younger African writers, really, it, it really it's the idea that uh, um, and the reason that um, I mean, if, if there's a if, if there's if there's a, if there's a test case of it, they say how to write about Africa, which, you know, I wrote in a day and sent and forgot about. <laughs> I mean, I d- had no idea. I don't think there's an African I have met who has not read that essay and passed it along. Really? It it just spoke to just so much of how people assume they're seen. How coming from an African country to even a college that works. All, if you're even in, a, you know, I'm at Williams College now. Mm-hmm. All the imagery that everybody knows is just base and crude. Mm-hmm. And what they've seen of you, I mean, it not if n- in nature programs, they've seen squirrels living better than you. That's mm-hmm. what you are. Right, right. You know, th- that's a simple base definition of who and what you are. That and that's the that's the attention you you presumably deserve. You also uh, have, you, you note in that article that I mean it's very striking and disturbing yes. that that the um, descriptions and narrative about elephants in Africa, for example, yes. about wildlife are much cre- present them in a much more three dimensional and in some ways compassionate way yes. than human beings in refugee camps or starving orphans it's i mean it's it's very disturbing <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so so anyway now these are i mean to us these are two that so and and of course what's really ironical about it is that as you sit here watching it on cnn in nairobi you're watching yourself on cnn too right 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 so we were sitting when the blood broke in kenya seeing the man with a panga that there was one shot that they just kept showing was a man with a kapanga hacking somebody to death, just not two miles from where I live. Right. And to me, that just became the image of the year. And it was kind of horrible because what was going on in Kenya was horrible, there is no question. But I mean, we've had 15 years of just working so hard to make things happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we can just be reduced to that moment. And, you know, in a sense, and somehow... Uh, um. The big story, uh, you know, I was just moving from place to place, and BBC had sent hordes of people <laughs> who were just like, "This is an Africa story. Right, right. <laughs> this is it. This is the one that they want. Mm. This is the slot in the news that this place is supposed to be consigned to. When everything was fine, you're invisible. Now you're kind of like, is it Rwanda? Are they Rwanda? Look at them, the tribal atavistic war. I'm sorry, it just is, uh, it's so unacceptable. Hmm. And unfortunately, um, you have people who need to sell this to make to make their name. I mean, if you're a, a freelance journalist in, in uh, trying to sell stories up, down the wires, you'll trip around. And I meet people all the time who are doing this. And in fact, as a new generation of, of I know I've met quite a few younger Canadian whatever, Influenced partly, weirdly enough, by that essay and studying in school and trying to see things differently, but they can't sell the stories. You know, you wrote something I found very interesting in the New York Times um, 
about that post-election violence in Kenya, in your country this year. Yeah. And you just, you put it in historical perspective, you know? You said we are 45 years old this year. And you you haven't here in this conversation with me, you didn't in that article deny that that horrible things were happening, that it was bad. (laughs) But you said nations are built on crises like this. Um, If there is such a thing as Kenya, which is a fairly new concept uh, or reality, it should be gathering energy right now. Um, The moment is now to make a solid thing called Kenya. I'm often aware in in conversations I have about all all kinds of issues in the world and other parts of the world that um, it's very hard for Americans in particular to, to bring any kind of historical perspective um, yes. including how dicey it was when this democracy was 45 years old. Sure. I mean, th- we are all... I mean, there, there are so few people in the continent who've never... who've not thought that our our, our hopes were always improbable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, whatever fight that people were having to have a viable nation, etc., well, there's, no, there's not a thing that's happened to us in the last century that's positive that hasn't been about defying what the odds are. Right. Defying the odds of who you know the v- overwhelming power somebody has over you, or defying the odds of being able to manage something where you know some colonial leaves and takes everything away, you know, a- and being able to do it. N- and and I can't tell you that that Kenya will work or it won't work, but um, certainly um, right now my sense is whatever it is that the relationship between you know this country and Kenya doesn't help. Like, <laughs> like if there's supposed to be something that's supposed to kind of make us go further, to my sense of things is that it doesn't help. My sense of things is that the relationship between here and there is more cynical, and mm. and that that um, this the 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 soft you know the the, the, the soft and patronizing power is whatever that you have. Um, um, our best intellects are working in American colleges right now. Right, and they're working right. in American colleges because they cannot be viably employed in Kenya. Um, th- I, I, I'll even make a, a, a stronger case and say that I think that many NGOs and, and donor organizations willfully do not employ uh, Kenyans because there's just, you know, the social element of it. You want to hang out with your peeps. Hmm. And so you ju- you have what now is a physical, tangible crowd of people who are called expatriates. They like to eat together, they like to live together, they like their friends to come and live there and work there, and that kind of thing. So you have a circuit. You have a circuitry. And there has been a kind of low-grade war going on in Nairobi over a while over expatriate skills, over local skills, where people feel they're underpaid, overworked, um, by a circuit that will not allow you to break in because if one of you gets in, um, then you threaten the whole edifice. So that's something that you know people talk about in Nairobi all the time. Now, you've also written about the 1990s in Kenya as yes. really formative for you, also in thinking forward, kind of imagining yes. different reality. And I, you, you told me a little bit of that story when, you, when we started to speak. But um, you know, you talked about uh, you've talked about how Kenya was a subsidized economy for 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. um, and and you, there's a really striking sentence that I think for Americans is striking. You know, you, mm-hmm. you wrote something about during that period you did not need to be creative, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you you do describe in the 90s, and I want you to fill this in. But you know, the country unraveling, right? That's the, the mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. Western donors pulling out, and then you said 
Nairobi became one giant heaving market, and you said we were, we were all becoming hustlers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is is that experience something that gives you some idea about the, the kind of reality based contours of how this might be different? Yeah, I mean, I I th- I think that that um, you're always fighting a threat. If if you want to call it like this, for since the nineties, what the, what had been become a stagnant thing called Kenya was standing up, lifting itself, rusty, and starting to move. And with that move, what happened was an enormous amount of opportunities were created, an enormous amount of threats. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the fact that the economy is doing well is very much directly tied to the violence that happened in January, because suddenly there's a stake. There's no apathy anymore. Anyway, everyone wants a bit of the cake, and the mm-hmm. cake doesn't satisfy right. everybody. Right. So things become very intense because there's hope again. But hope and its you know and its opposite side are two very closely related things. Um now so in a way for my generation the ni- the ye- the nineties were the year of sleep. Those who could not get out <laughs> of the country dispersed to all manner of places they built skills. Here in you know Kenya sends more students to America than any other country. Five thousand a year I <laughs> believe. Um um and 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 you know african immigrants first generation african immigrants in america are the single most educated social group in america 23% of them mm. have university degrees mm. so this is the other myth you know somehow that that you have these people coming who don't add value and i'm i'm saying not chinese american immigrants or indian american it's african immigrants in here who are the best educated mm. even further that the people with the highest numbers percentages of, ma- of masters degrees are nigerian 31% of them mm. 31% of nigerians living inside this country have masters degrees no social group in america does quite so well so one of the things that kind of was horrible was this generation uh, who are skilled who are educated by the state who who moved all those skills to come here and to go elsewhere, who missed home and who were trying to find a way to come back. Those who remained home had to become hustlers. You <laughs> had to find a business, you had to do stuff, etc. But one of the things about it is in, during those sleeping moments, people get very creative. <laughs> so what has happened is that, it, it, you know, I, I suspect that what has happened is that you have just this very muscular group of people, the kids who went to college after I left Kenya in the early 90s, were really hard. They didn't have uh, college grants. They had to work part-time. Some of them had to, you know, do really terrible things. They had to finish their education. Some of them were selling fruit on the streets while carrying a full-time job. So you just kind of had a really muscular... Yeah, it sounds like American college thing. students, actually, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when, when, I mean, when opportunity presented itself five years ago, you could see the growth happening really quickly mm. because people were really tough and kind of ready for opportunity. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to the images that are very visible in American culture and in global culture now of mm. very powerful um, and sometimes, you know, really exciting people like Angelina Jolie or Bill Gates or Bono, <laughs> right? Yes, Who yes. are out to save Africa. And, um, I know maybe you have to, maybe those are different. Bono and Angelina Jolie and Bill Gates are different, but let, I mean, yes. let's take Bill Gates, who yes. is a very smart guy and has lots of money and is looking specifically at people dying, <laughs> right? Yes. And taking medicine and taking cures. So, yes. so how, is that a good thing? For you, I guess so. I mean, the, uh, um, the, 
to me the idea that somebody's going to invest money in 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 researching things like malaria which are woefully underfunded mm-hmm. and that kind of thing is a wonderful and noble quest and, and two the idea too that that somebody is the application of 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 good knowledge to make a better world is something i believe in and i support and so so if that is happening i'm i'm really happy the point is um because just because they're doing it does not exempt them from the same amount of scrutiny i will expect to give my government right that's just the point mm-hmm. it's that i am not going i'm not here to call somebody the savior of my this mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when i do not know who you account to and why so for example um with the with the jeffrey sachs thing there's a great great like jeffrey sachs yes mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know the village inside there i have tons of questions i you know i have a thousand questions mm-hmm. and i haven't ever seen any kind of scrutiny about what's going on there in a kenyan newspaper never okay never i've never seen i'm like take take the good brains of which there are many in that city take them there i know international media go they see the report and they say it's wonderful i don't know what that thing is okay and clearly it requires <laughs> And it's happening in your country, right? <laughs> that's happening in my country. Yes. And which for some reason has global implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 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 the question is not is it good or is it bad? The question is why isn't it presenting itself for the scrutiny? If it is so good, mm-hmm. why cannot it why can't it present itself for the scrutiny? Why has, is it not saying we are come to your country? right mm-hmm. and we are open for you to come and see what we are doing and we want your best minds to come tell us what they think is wrong with it mm-hmm. i know that certain people in the ministry of agriculture etc are like well what they're doing we did in the 70s and it didn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> okay <laughs> i don't know what that is i don't know what that means i don't know what the pic- big picture is i don't know who it accounts to i don't know who it speaks to so i don't know who it is for mm-hmm. and i uh, certainly and i think a lot of the members of the nairobi intelligentsia feel the same way that somehow you get countermanded it's quite easy to go and speak to quote and quote the people in the grassroots they just need food right and then up there now coming to answer hard questions from an intelligence that's working in a country that is not probably not going to take shit quite so easily right is a whole other story and you get the sense a lot of times about it just like you know why i mean if if the case is you know present yourselves for it So the question uh, for me the question is not the goodness or the badness or mm. the rightness or the wrongness right. it's the idea somehow that this thing does not want to present itself for proper scru- scrutiny um Victoria Schlesinger's piece just kind of my question for example is what I don't know is that is that village in Kenya and Rwanda a genuine test is it a test to see if the ideas work or is is it a is it a PR move is it a is it a thing that found a place that could show how the thing works so that it proves what was already previously decided mm-hmm. so are there questions being asked mm-hmm. or is this thing supposed to be just an answer which will then be scaled up and then by the way and this is why we become so skeptical there are like 12 different development plans that have been thrust upon us since the 1950s right, not right. a single one of them has worked right right and uh, now i i'm sure you're aware that There is a new generation of um social comes often under the rubric of social entrepreneurialism. Mm-hmm. Younger, 
uh, activists um, often combining business and uh, work, kind of NGO-type work, mm-hmm. who consider this old development model to be broken, the top-down, mm-hmm. the whole World Bank um and you know, and I think you've you've talked about how there there are few useful development models models for genuinely self-starting people. And I think part mm-hmm. of the approach mm-hmm. of these new entrepreneurs is, uh, I spoke with one of them just a few months ago, Jonathan Greenblatt, is that they Great. don't they don't come up with big ideas and then test them out or impose them. They look for um, organic grassroots uh, self-starting and self-help that's already happening, and then they try to support that. Mm. Is that good? Is that a good development? Or is it in danger of some of the same kinds of problems? I guess so. I, I, I mean, uh, um, as I, again, as I said earlier on, uh, um, in, if you walk around the landscape of Nairobi and see the things that people are doing, mm-hmm. there's just so many incredible things. It, it, it's not the idea that... that aid is bad and then people who are doing aid are bad mm-hmm. there are social entrepreneurs are cultural entrepreneurs i work for an institution called kwani which has received donor money so uh, you know th- my idea here is not to get on the high horse of like point finger right the idea about behind these polemics is just that but where's the scrutiny why, mm-hmm. why you know um um I live in a world that people are supposed to be able to accept forceful criticism from both sides, and that disciplines what they do, what they do mm-hmm. for the service that they do it. And I feel very strongly that this industry not only does not subject itself to scrutiny, is afraid of it. And and because it is afraid of it, I have good reason to be suspicious of it. So I need to make a lot of noise, and other Africans need to make a lot of noise, so that you have, uh, let's call it, a, a lot more transparency right. and a lot more right. clarity. So somebody says, I'm not here to self-efface myself and say I'm just helping people. I want some kind of authority over the management of this district, which, you know, like I was talking about with our agriculture, say we, we, are, we are out to influence right. the agricultural extension officers. We need to say this. I, I just do, I don't want to go and find people inside my country doing things that I don't know and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, so in the sense of social entrepreneurship, I believe that's fine. I I can tell you um, that to my mind, um, all the things that have significantly mattered in the growth of my country have had to do with very concrete things. Right. When the government decided to spend 30% of a budget of education from the 60s to the 70s, they cl- created a class of educated people. I can say that I think a large majority of people who have removed from poverty through the 50s and the 60s and 70s was because of their access to decent primary school education hmm. funded by our government mm-hmm. uh, with donor help quite often, by mm. the way. Right. Um, and, you know, a clear kind of roadmap and stepladder for how somebody could live a small rural area and end up with a decent job somewhere. In, and all yeah. those things have somehow broken up. And and charity has often intervened somewhere, and we don't know. Uh, you know, and I can say that um, in the last ten or fifteen years, the single thing that's changed the lives of millions of Kenyans has been the rearrangement of banking capital to service the small Kenyan. Mm. And you know, mm. banks mm. like Equity Bank, which were micro lending bank, scaling up the idea that somebody who earns a thousand shillings a month is bankable and someone to invest in and being able to create a model for that person to acquire credit uh, in a reasonable way and grow, that has mattered more than 10 of the donor or a thousand of the donor things hmm. It, hmm. Um, because it allows, it believes in the idea that the p- person on the ground has an idea 
and that idea can be serviced. And whenever you ever, wh whenever it has happened in the hun last hundred years, that people have created an infrastructure that assumes that the person who's who's been given that infrastructure is someone who, given so, will grow. That mm -hmm. they have mm -hmm. their own ideas, mm -hmm. Kenya's moved forward. Mm -hmm. And whenever they have assumed that you're not, Kenya's moved backward. I, I, I can't see any better way to put it than that. Mm. You know, one, another Kenyan I've interviewed is Wangari Matai. Yes. And, uh, you know, her story is so striking. I mean, at this point, you say, here is this Nobel Peace Prize winner who's planted 30 million trees and counting. But it started mm -hmm. with such a simple observation. Uh, mm -hmm. and, it, and it was a link that had been broken. You know, just a very, very uh, a link about between trees growing and water and food and work. Mm -hmm. uh, and quality of of life it wasn't a, it wasn't anything now it's a great big huge idea that you can call a movement but it started yes. so close to the ground and i i also think maybe we don't tell ourselves those stories about about how close things start to the ground that really do work after 30 years uh, 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 certainly and how how genuinely invested um people are in living a better life mm. um yeah you know and, and so good ideas catch on um, hmm. And there's, there's ample evidence to show this. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. What? Oh, do you want to eat your apple now? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've been good. I'm good. Okay, well, you just... Well, I have a few more questions. Um, and if you want to take a break, that's fine. Okay, I'll take, a f I'll take five. Yeah, do that. Okay. You guys have thoughts back there? Yeah? Okay. Um. Oh, I will ask that. No, I'm okay. I actually have I have extra water here, so I'm fine.
Hello. Hi. You back? Hi. Hi. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> cool. I'm done. Okay. We have we have until a half hour, right? Okay. All right. Great. I want to ask you uh, something I didn't ask you at the beginning. I, I usually ask this when I'm talking to anyone. Um, yes. Was there a religious or spiritual background in your in your family and your upbringing? Um. Yes, no, I'm not particularly religious myself. My mm-hmm. mother was very. Mm-hmm. Um, my my father's family were very kind of Presbyterian. Okay. My grandmother was a big, 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 big fierce <laughs> church woman. She went preaching around the whole of East Africa. <laughs> right. And my granddad on my mother's side, let's just put it like this, like the f- Catholic cathedral of the district is on his land. So. Okay. All right. <laughs> um... And I guess like many families who, 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 who managed to make it, you, we come from that early generation of people who were mission educated. And, and a lot of that missionary infrastructure, in fact, uh, it, what is amazing is just how much good work is often done by the churches, yeah. y- you know, to this day. Hmm. Um, some of the most interesting projects I've seen, ca- you know, the, the Catholic church networks, etc., really do exceptional work. The Muslims as well, uh, in a certain way, because... You know, you have a very long relationship with people and you understand their value. Oh, well, that's and interesting. All right. You know, and they do the things um, themselves. So when we had a drought in 84, the Catholic Church decided to do these water projects. They brought technology that can convert, f- uh, you know, refile water as a lot of fluoride. Mm. And the projects that the Catholic Church did to provide boreholes and water, get the community participating and paying money, you know, uh, the relationship of the priests with his parishioners, quite often doing projects even in places where people are not necessarily Catholics. It's just very much on the ground. It's very sensible. It's very cost effective. It's, you know, it and it's very natural and it's part of our lives. Hmm. It's not this sort of dizzying thing that arrives and departs, you know, with somebody else. If frequently you have priests, whether they are from Kenya or not from Kenya, you know, you have priests who, who arrive there, who've some lived for 30 years, right. who've traveled around the place, and who've got a very strong sense of who you are and who you are back to them. And so no assumptions. So um, even though I'm not a practicing person from the churches, those are, those are things that I really actually do appreciate, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, quite a lot. That's very interesting. You know, I to ask you have you read Paul Theroux the um the travel writer and I guess he's also a novelist <laughs> yes. have you read his book Dark Dark Star Safari yes up to page 300 or so <laughs> I, I got re- tired I read the whole thing <laughs> I, I wanna, that, that book actually got me thinking about this in a new way yes. now I know Paul Theroux has his own angle on things um sure sure <laughs> but he here he was a westerner who in fact had been in where had he been? Uganda, I believe, in the 1970s. So he was also, he was not just traveling all the way from the top to the bottom of Africa, but he was going back to place, particular places that he'd known well. Um, yes. And he was very appalled at how, uh, I mean, just this was his anecdotal from his personal experience with all these decades of aid, things hadn't yes. gotten better. Yes. I just want to read you, you know, here's the kind of, uh, I mean, I, there's there was a story that I, I thought was really you know, this was the kind of story he he told all the way through the continent about, Great. for example, being in Ethiopia and there's a, they're in a there are condos that in a leper colony that German mm-hmm. a German NGO had come in and built these beautiful condos but that were totally not responsive to the way people lived and so the the only slum like place there was the, were these German condos which were falling down and then you know then he was in Uganda 
where he'd been in the 70s, where your mother is from. And he said, so here's a passage. There's a new hospital donated by the Swedes or the Japanese, a new school funded by the Canadians, a Baptist clinic, a flour mill that was signposted a gift of the American people. These were like inspired Christmas presents, the sort that stop running when the batteries die or that break and aren't fixed. The projects would become wrecks, every one of them, because they carried with them the seeds of their destruction. Do you think that's right? And if it's true, you know, in your words, how do these projects carry the seeds of their destruction? Well, I mean, um, it's a complicated thing, but... uh, um I guess le- when we are speaking about the church, in f- for example, yeah. I mean, um, there's certainty that if there's a parish in the middle of Sudan, uh, there's a parish in Darfur, you know, that parish is a permanent enterprise, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a permanent enterprise that is a, a part of people's lives, like going to get an ID and going to go to school is. Okay. And therefore, you d- there's not an extraordinary leap of faith to say, I'm going to the Catholic church clinic, mission, school, etc. These become part of the organism of your daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to, say, a uh, sleeping sickness hospital that's dropped plonk in the middle of Sudan, <laughs> as many, you know, right. and with all these high-tech things and all these doctors flown in, just the sheer energy and effort of 12 4x4s running up and down to buy food and doctors falling sick all the time and saying this is a terrible posting i preferred Mogadishu disappearing right and then the fact that it may have project funding for eight years for the mysterious and complicated way that project funding happened okay. and that somebody's <laughs> signing off on it in the middle of germany or in brussels somewhere um um oh gosh i have to switch oh. that off Sorry. oh okay Sorry. um, um so in I'm germany or brussels somewhere somewhere who it's just like, well, you know, there's a new government in France. Um, I don't know if you can a- approve the budget anymore. Uh, you know, so I, and I'm speaking about a specific thing because I did visit a specif- specific hospital. And when I asked the question, what's going to happen? What's the, ba- what's the leaving plan? There was confusion because there was just like, we're actually at the victim of some decision out there. And we don't have a plan to say who we are going to leave it to. If should it come where you're like, we have fulfilled our objective and now we are leaving. Right. Right. But and then you had a question as well that you have all this high tech and you have all these, I mean, people who would normally be paid quite high salaries. But the 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 rules of the proposal and the setting up of the thing were that it would not provide basic health care needs. So you have a county hospital in that one, which could not give people basic health care. And you have this hospital for sleeping sickness with 80 beds, which are not full. And it couldn't do that. So. Yeah. Okay. You know, there's I mean, something it's not. It, th- there's I something went artificial. And this place, and <laughs> yeah. I did feel that that hospital was doing amazing work. Mm-hmm. It was not. The, the, there was no question in my mind. Sleeping sickness is a crisis. Nobody's doing anything about it, and the crisis is massive because there's no drugs, there's no what. So I mean, for them to go there, set this up, find a system is remarkable. But then you leave saying. What's going to be the picture in the long run? I mean, will they just take it off and say the German government helped, and then you move on? Now, if this was a, a if this was something to do with, let us say, crudely for the example, the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, you can see where the continuity is. You can see that the fact that each priest has got an accountability to his parishioners, hmm. who come to that church willingly hmm. and who listen, you know. So there's a place in which there's a relationship that can grow. That does not allow for things to get out of control or become dizzying or become stupid. There are checks and balances. So the problem there becomes that in the environment under which that hospital lives is that it can. 
Okay. If I'm the German government and I want to build a hospital anywhere in Africa, people will be like, here, what color do you want it? <laughs> so you don't <laughs> have any scrutiny right. that allows you to af- be di- as disciplined as you could be. Right, that's really interesting. Um, I want to uh, change gears a little bit. Uh, you yes. were um, you received a letter last year uh, informing you that you had become a young <laughs> global leader of 2007 of the World Economic Forum, and uh, this le- this letter invited you to a gathering and to be part of a unique, I'm quoting now, unique worldwide network of peers with a high z- highly visible opportunity to significantly impact world affairs. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know, and you know, this is, it is a great honor, and you turned it down. I want to read a little bit from the letter you wrote. Um, you said... Um, You know, some things were immediately clear to me from the letter and from the website, the quality of the letter's paper, the gigantic networks of spectacular resumes on offer, the princes, princesses, the beauty queens and violinists, the presidents, the iconic athletes, Hollywood comedians, the artists, the various savers of various troubled societies. But you said that you still didn't, that it was very flat and not at all clear what would happen, um, that it was kind of unexplained. And you said, I assume that most like me are tempted to go anyway because we will get to be validated and glow with the same kind of self-congratulation that can only be bestowed by very globally visible and significant people. Um, but you you talked about how, um, for you as a writer, it's important to avoid things that give me too much certainty about one's place in the world, about the world, about the perpetual shifting nature of characters and their interaction with each other and with space and time. And you wrote, it would be an act of great fraudulence for me to accept the trite idea that I am going to significantly impact world affairs. You know, what you're doing there is questioning... Um, just as we spoke about earlier, you know, you're you're seeing there's there's a way in which you 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 can see that look at the same site differently. You're also questioning um, what looks important and powerful, um, mm. not just from the perspective of the, of the World Economic Forum, but from the perspective of of a lot of people just who read newspapers and inhabit the mm. contemporary world. Mm, is that you? Is that your generation? Um, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I do think. I mean, it, it, it. I think it's a challenge. I, I, um, I've come to think so. For example, uh, following the Obama campaign has really been a revelation, and I, I found myself really emotional the day after he won. Mm. And when thinking about it, you know, leaving alone, you know, the fact that it's the first black president wasn't anything else. It was like, when's the last time somebody was just not cynical? <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> cynical, right? Just like, yeah. <sighs> You can do good. You are good people. We are good people. Like the hey, world hey, is made of people Sorry. who want to do. What Sorry. is that? I just need Bruce. Can you um, just adjust the microphone so it doesn't get hit? I'm sorry. Oh, it was just um, you. S- you scrape the microphone. I don't think it's. I think it's just about adjusting because I just want to make sure we can use it. Okay. Okay. Uh, um. So, mm, is is Bruce there? Or let's just just try not to scrape against the the microphone. Okay, um, so sorry. you were saying, okay, so not to be cynical. <laughs> not to be cynical, mm-hmm. and I think it's something that really sneaks up on you. Um, and I think that it, it, if there's such a thing as a global mood, I think that the global mood is very cynical and positioning. And mm-hmm. well, I'm doing that, but then what about my CV? And then you know, there's all of this thing. And and 
what your noble goodies, what what sense of service you come to the world to bring, somehow kind of disappeared. I mean, really, I'm kind of starting to hear language at. I haven't heard since I was a kid in a way. Hmm. What do you, I mean, what what is your noble good? What do you serve? Um, where is your union? I mean, where do people go in that sense? That, that we'd come to a point where we didn't even believe that a human body could come together mm-hmm. for an idea of a common good. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. W- in, in the process of saying that, it was the reason I... I I mean, I I felt at first I, I wrote that letter partly because I was feeling like being mischievous. <laughs> okay. And <coughs> and I guess as somebody who has never been had the most amazing relationship with institutions in my life, I I I, I really deeply resented the attitude within which they approached me for this thing, because I just opened my inbox and then there was this flood of people who were saying congratulations, and then I received this letter which says you have already this thing. Right, right. And then it was saying things that, you know, you become familiar. You go to Dalian, China. Right. And then I'm Googling and then they were like, the 50, I don't know what they're called, go to India and they said hello to an orphanage. And I'm like, please. I So, so I was like, you people, the, the assumption somehow that you can write to somebody... You're not exactly saying why did you Google him? I mean, it, it's not <laughs> why they clear chose or coherent you? to me right. what it is that they feel mm-hmm. is going to give you world power. Right. As far as some people on the other side of the political argument are concerned, it, it's just a way to give themselves good PR because of the World Social Forum. I don't even know, and uh, those politics are not mine. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the, la- the long and the short of it was that I feel like, like the v- if there's a valuable thing about being a human being is to never uh, let your noble good be corrupted and if there's I, there are many things that i am which some may be uh, disorganized or crazy but i am more than any other thing i am a writer it's a thing i love to do and it's a thing and i think that the writer's role is to be something to society to be some kind of free agent who allows to look for things to have insight to be able to say things sometimes when people are not prepared to say them mm. um and that's a thing that you need to protect, and it's worth more than anything. I think that that um, if if a readership who reads my work on the continent and elsewhere um, um, trust that, trust that 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 noble good. Mm. I I feel strongly that that um, that you have an ability to speak to people. And for people not to receive your words cynically. And so you wanted that trust to be on the basis of your work itself. And, and in fact, you don't find it to be especially validated by um, becoming a celebrated, you know, young global leader. But it is countercultural. Do you know what no, I'm saying? But, I mean, the thing is, it's just... It wasn't... I mean, I would love... I, I love prizes. Right. <laughs> I, I love goodies. I, it's just... It it it's just I mean if I'm a writer the, the, whatever it is that they were asking me to do was not coherent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it may be it may be I saw a threat that didn't exist because I mean they are an institution with an agenda, and it's an agenda that it seeks to have a very significant influence upon this world. Right. It's not any mild mannered organization what Davos is and what it represents, right? Right. And so, um, um. So what what they're asking, they're asking a very big thing of people. And 
I didn't feel that they felt that they needed to account to the people they were asking this for mm -hmm. enough to be clear about what they were asking and why. Mm -hmm. So let us say now I went. I would have loved it. Right. God, you mean right. princess right. who you kiss, da 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 da. You party there in Delhi and China. You come back now. Then the time comes like they do something stupid. <laughs> okay. And now you're on the mailing list. You want to go back again. So and so has told you come to my palace. I don't know who tells you what, but. Right. <laughs> Suddenly, you're constrained in a certain sense because you're belonging to a community and you don't know what that community is. So it just started off kind of mischievously. I was just like, what would happen if I was to... So I chatted with some friends. like, what have, you know? So I started to write the letter. But as I started to think about it, you know, the more and more concerned I got, I was just like, you know, um, um, how you get co-opted to be of, uh, of service to things that you don't know. Right, right. Um, uh, uh, and how the, how has the world become so cynical that somebody can write you a letter right. that will just assume because they've said you're going to just be their party and we've called you this thing. Right, you, you are that thing. There's no accountability to explaining what does that mean for whom and where and how. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Well, okay. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. You've been, you're at Williams College this year. Yep. Is that correct? You've been in the States. How long? Yes. For... Oh, I teach here th six months a year, and I've been teaching here for four years now. Okay. Uh, one of the things you write about uh, is how, again, coming back to this phrase, the ethics of aid, that, that donor aid, the shape aid projects take, and the spirit of them often really is saying more about the the pers the Westerners, you know, our guilt, <laughs> um, yes. for example, um, Mm, and good intentions again, but saying more about um, is more revealing of, or, or at least let's say more responsive to one's own desire to make a difference to help than it is yes. in fact responsive to the needs of the people who are being helped. I just yes. wonder if as you've spent time in the United States, do you have yes. a different kind of insight into that, um, into these impulses that create have created this vast universe of donor aid? A lot of it powered from here. You know, I wish I could say yes, um, but I guess not. And I think the thing, when I said at the beginning of this conversation that you, a lot of aid people are cynical about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, someone would say, oh, well, I came here because I believed in something. Um, what about your job? Well, I kind of think we don't make any change. And what about aid in general? Phew, whatever. You come into the discovery. But the problem is that it is not one place. It's many countries giving many monies in many complicated ways, many people receiving it and many right. people servicing it in ways that we don't know. So it's become a big thing where the small cannot talk to who. So everybody's inside there is lost. The people who do good work are like, well, I'll just do my thing. Um, right. They're concerned that your, your hand is bumping your mic. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. Okay. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't bump the mic no, All right. I mean let me let me ask you this like I spoke in the last year with a very important um, religious leader in this country yes. who yes. has in mid in mid career discovered AIDS in Africa and yes. um, poverty in Africa and yes. you know the story plays itself out again and again and so here's what he said to me um when he saw that, this, this is how he described his realization. He said, the reason there are hungry people in the world 
there are suffering people in the world is because of our own selfishness. What do I mm-hmm. say to a woman in Sudan holding a baby who's dying of lack of water? The only thing yeah. I can say is, I'm sorry, I am sorry. Why did I not get here sooner? And I wonder yeah. if you could be sitting with him when he had that moment of realization. How would you yeah. want to nuance um, his reaction or his thinking about how to put that reaction and how to turn that into a project? Oh, dear. I mean, I, I, I guess... Um, um, <laughs> uh, I guess the thing would be first to say that um, there suddenly... I mean, the fact of things is that a lot of the things that go on in the poor parts of the world mm-hmm. come because of a particular sensibility and a particular greed and a particular determination for a particular kind of lifestyle, which sometimes has direct costs on, you know, the people in mm-hmm. Africa or India mm-hmm. or anywhere else. That's that, Certainly that's true. Certainly we don't live in, an, in a fair world. And certainly we are not getting um, a fair shake in... Mm-hmm. in, in in how global resources are allowed and what opportunities are created um, for people trying to do things. So I agree, I agree with that, certainly. But, I mean, the point about all of this about is, 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 is that, uh, like he says, a lot of people arrive in Nairobi to, or in Africa to assume that it's a blank, empty space. Hmm. And their goodwill and desire and guilt will fix it. Um, a- and... That to me is not any different from the first people, from the you know first people who arrived and colonized us. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I, I just want to re-emphasize that that this power, the power of charity, is just about as dangerous as hard power. Uh, this this power to help, you mean this? This power to help. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just as bad as dangerous as as hard power. You mean it's right? Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly, because very often it arrives with a kind of zeal. That it's, it's assuming I will, I, I will do it. I will solve it for you. I will fix it for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, and it rides roughshod over your own best efforts, which, as I said, you know, again, to me, the good efforts that, that have been done have been the ones that have been sensible and worked. Right. You know, I was a child of parents who earned a good income was born in a public hospital mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. Kenya, mm-hmm. in Nakuru. So that is uh, possible. When I was sick, we'd go there. Right. I mean, and they would be like, why spend the money on a private doctor when this is working? You know, these mm-hmm. were things that worked. Mm-hmm. They were not big. They were not flashy. Sometimes they had their bends and their knocks and everything else. And it just is, you keep moving to these things that are not sensible. And I think the fevered idea of saving something, to me, is already so removed from something sensible right the fevered <laughs> idea I, I think, because what yeah. when you're asked to make choices to pick a job i want to just help people How, are you going to pick a job that gives you the satisfaction that says when i in six months i'll have saved 42 orphans mm-hmm. or the things that usually work which are the sensible things which are like well these people don't have basic health care mm-hmm. that clinic does not have if you can't make sure that you collect and build one brick at a time, and da, 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 and so that there's a permanent enterprise here. Mm-hmm. So really, a lot of the things that end up satisfying that sort of guilt are what you call the quick fixes. Right. You the know. mad rush of attention right. and food drops and planes and cameras and photographs and liftings and takings and adoptings and 
all those dramatic things that just came and make you say, I was a bad person and now I'm good and I can get back to work. Right, right. That means nothing to my daily life or not. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I think I keep knocking this yeah, mic against you do. my shoulder. Just be careful. You've got a few more minutes. We're almost done. All right. You know, as I was preparing, as I was preparing this interview <coughs> with you, I, I looked over at my desk and I noticed that there was a, you know, one of these big cubes of post-it notes, sticky mm-hmm. notes, and it said on the side, end global end global poverty yes period faster period <laughs> <laughs> and i thought no, is that we're surrounding ourselves now in this culture with these kinds of messages which again are good messages but mm. there's something so wrong with it as well uh yeah yeah well i mean um the question the causes are noble and and um I guess the thing is, you know, I'm not a development economist, and a lot of the things I say, you know, I really don't know the intricacies of of things. Mm. Um, you know, in the sense, I speak very much as a citizen right. who's witnessed, you know, these phenomena coming into our lives and looking at them, and you know, have my piece to say. And and um, uh, just if there's a if there's a, if there's a thing that the West should know is that uh, where these things work is where people do them themselves. I mean, if you want to talk about grassroots organizations that work and change a country, you go to India. Hmm. Because Pre- they pretty much do them themselves. And because they have real no, no shrift for the usual nonsense. <laughs> and th- the thing about Africa is maybe if it may be that we are poorer or weaker somehow. So people with the craziest ideas that, I mean, things that they tell their cousins they want to do, they'll be like, you're crazy. Right. You can you can do it and you can get money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, uh, the I would just say to my own, for my own mind, whenever I'm looking at something and I want to know, is this something sensible? I ask myself, how, what kind of relationship does it have with the existing intelligentsia back in that country? Mm-hmm. If they participate in it, work for it, are involved in it, um, t- probably tend to move in its direction. Because, um, and if they don't, I, p- I probably tend to move aside from it. If there's no engagement with it, it, I, it, I don't know, it's a rule of thumb. I don't have any particular easy mm-hmm. rationale mm-hmm. for it. Um, but I do know that there's an intelligentsia in Kenya who is smart and who's concerned about that country. Right. And who takes time to know things. And if they're not willingly interested in what you're doing, I'd be, uh, I would doubt um, your motives or efficacy. Uh, yeah. You wrote at the end of your piece that you wrote in uh, 2007 in Vanity Fair, you wrote, we have learned to ignore the shrill screams coming from the peddlers of hopelessness. We motor on faith and enterprise with small steps on hope and without hysteria. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you end on without hysteria. <laughs> True. And I'll say again, you go back uh, from 1940 till now. Any countries that have done well for themselves and have managed to do positive things that have changed the lives of large parts of their countries have done so on their own effort. Okay. On the effort of their own citizenry with ideas that come from that citizenry and, and therefore get m- all manner of support from government or from all kinds of other places. That's the way it works. I, so there may be a place in the sense that, that you have a kind of inter like like you have international courts, you have a kind of international humanitarian movement mm. because you have situations that are urgent. Darfur right. was one, Rwanda is another is another. Right. Uh, certainly those things work. But um 
the willy-nilliness of all of this is unacceptable. And the um, our countries are frail and young, and um, I have no problem being viciously aggressive towards these things that refuse to be unaccountable because the stakes for us are very high. <laughs> you know, people end up, you come, you do your three years, and you go back. But for us, the stakes are really high. Right. It's your life. <laughs> it's our life. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, this is great. I think that's absolutely a, a great last word. And I've really, really enjoyed this. And um, we'll let you know what's happening with this. And I don't know if we're on the air. Where, what's your, are you, you're not in Boston, are you? No, I'm in Williamstown. So I'm in Massachusetts somewhere. Yeah. Um, Do you uh, hear Western the, Mass. All right. Well, anyway, we'll let you know when it's on the radio and, and send you a CD and, um, and when it's online. And, um, that would be lovely. We, we may That'd have if some, if there are questions, follow-up questions, um, Shiraz will be back in touch with you. Great, great. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Bye-bye. Take care.